0: Morning City Church, thank you so much for joining us, wherever you're joining us from today. We certainly hope that you are well. As many of you know, on Friday afternoon, the governor of the state of Indiana gave us his plan to get the state of Indiana back on track. And as part of that plan, between May 8th and May 23rd, he asked that social gatherings be restricted to groups of 25 or less. Following that, beginning on May 24th, uh, social gatherings of 100 or less would be allowed. So that's the date that we have targeted to begin to meet together again in some way, shape, or form, May 24th. Now, we'd ask that you give us a lot of grace in this because everything remains fluid. The governor has said that this, these guidelines will only be in effect as long as things continue in the same direction that they are in. And even if they do, we're still working out the details of how we will make it possible for groups of 100 or less to meet here at City Church. Nevertheless, that's the date we're shooting for, and we just wanted to make you aware of that this morning. Let's pray that things do continue in the same direction so that we can begin to move in some way, shape, or form back to some kind of normal again. Tell me if this has ever happened to you. Have you ever been so sure that you were right about something, only to find out later that you were absolutely and completely wrong. Maybe it had to do, for instance, maybe it had to do with something like, uh, I don't know, the name of the actor in an Oscar-winning movie, and uh, you argued with someone about it, you were absolutely sure you were right, and then it turned out uh, that you were wrong. Maybe it, was, uh, maybe it wasn't that, maybe it was the lyrics to a particular song. I realize that this dates me. But the Rolling Stones sing a very famous song called Beast of Burden. And they repeat throughout the song this this line, I'll never be your beast of burden. Except for a long time, longer than I care to admit, I was absolutely certain (laughs) that they were singing, I'll never be your Easter Bunny. Which never made sense to me, by the way, because that certainly the, the, the title of the song would indicate that that wasn't. Uh, the lyric, but I'm not a songwriter, so what do I know? And so I would belt the song out with complete and total confidence every time I heard the song. You can imagine how humiliated I was when I found out that's not what they were singing after all. Friends, a friend of mine's wife tells a story about a time that they were on a, on a flight headed to a business event that she had. And she gets up, she got up, she said to use the bathroom and on the plane. And then when she was finished, as she was walking down the length of the plane back to her seat, she noticed that she was getting uh, stares from other passengers. She interpreted that. In fact, she was absolutely certain that the reason that they were giving her those stares was because she had chosen this very fashionable outfit to wear on the flight. So she says that she strutted down the aisle with utter confidence that that's what they were staring at. But when she got near her seat, her husband was doubled over laughing, pointing, and, and, pointing and, and mouthing between gasps of air, Your skirt, your skirt. And when she looked down, she realized that she had tucked the back of her skirt into her underwear. That's why she was getting stares. I and mean, you can imagine how uh, mortified she was when she discovered that. If you've ever had that kind of thing happen, you know that once, once you get over the uh, initial embarrassment of those kinds of moments it's it's shocking and it's a little disorienting to realize that you could be so utterly and completely wrong when you felt so sure you were right and you can see that register on a person's face when something like that happens they you know they they stammer for a minute and then they stop and they they look at you kind of funny And maybe they argue with you for a few seconds and then it finally registers, oh my gosh, I can't believe I was so wrong while I was so confident I was right. And of course, the reason that it's so shocking and disorienting is because we place an enormous amount of confidence in our perception of reality. I'm I'm not saying most people would say this in the moment, though some people do, but somewhere In the back of your mind, when when something like that happens to you, there is this question. If I could be so wrong about that, what else might I be terribly wrong about? If you have a Bible with you, uh, near you this morning, turn with me in it to the 23rd Psalm. uh, The 23rd Psalm. And we're going to wrap up this morning a series that we've been in from... uh, Uh, for the last couple of weeks from the 23rd Psalm called Fear No Evil. And uh, as I said, we started this series a number of weeks ago when the reality of the coronavirus pandemic first became real to many of us through the shelter-in-place orders that we were given. I think it's fair to say that most people felt pretty confident prior to that happening that there was no way that a microscopic virus could could take down the American way of life, the American economy, the NBA, the National Hockey League, so quickly. It all seemed like that it had too much inertia for that to happen. We're we're too technologically savvy, we're too scientifically advanced, I think we thought, for something like that to happen, and yet, yet here, here we are. It's clear that our confidence in our perception of our invulnerability was woefully misplaced. That's not really where I want to go this morning. Uh, We've established that over the course of the last few weeks. What I want to talk about today is how our confidence in our perception of reality often fails us in the midst of the dark valleys of life. Back in 1955, Dr. Martin Luther King was speaking to a congregation in Montgomery, Alabama, and he began his sermon like this. Here it was. He started like this. We'll put it up here on the screen for you too. He said, Life constantly presents each man with circumstances which are beyond his control. One of the great temptations of life is to become too absorbed in one's circumstances. There are many people whose visions are turned totally inward and they can never see beyond their particular circumstances. This always leads uh, to tragic consequences. Whenever a man looks merely at his circumstances, he ends up in despair, disillusionment, and cynicism. Let me just stop for one moment. Let me just say that that happened to me uh, just this past week. I got caught up in looking at some of the circumstances in my life, and I concluded with great confidence in my perception of reality that those circumstances could only mean that the situation I was facing uh, was hopeless, hopeless. That God had abandoned me in the midst of uh, this and that the only logical emotion to feel was despair. Has something like that ever happened to you? Dr. King went on to say, and you can see it at the very end of this quote, He said, he said, the great burden of life then is to master the art of looking beyond one's circumstances. Now, if I may, I want to alter that statement slightly for the purposes of this sermon, not that I'm going to improve upon Dr. King's sermon, but perhaps to make it a little more clear for you where I'm going this morning. I'd like to say it this way, that one of the great challenges of faith is to master the art of looking beyond our limited perception of reality. I think that's what David is doing in the last two verses of the psalm that we're going to look at this morning, I want to go back and let's let's read the whole psalm one last time, and we're gonna then we'll come back and we'll focus our attention on the last two verses. Just a quick reminder that this psalm is a psalm of David, the, the king of Israel at the time. And let's just let's again go back, Psalm twenty three. Let's read the whole thing through from verse one. David says, "The Lord is my shepherd; I lack nothing." He makes me lie down in green pastures, He leads me beside quiet waters, He refreshes my soul, He guides me along the right paths for His name'sake. even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's where we ended last week. Here's where we'll pick up. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want you to notice two significant things that happen uh, between verse 4 and verse 5. First, I want you to notice What verse 5 follows. It comes immediately on the heels of the dark valley that David describes in verse 4. He says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, this is verse 4, I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then he comes out of that in verse 5, immediately following that dark valley with, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup, overflows. Now, uh, that's not a coincidence that these two verses are butted up against each other. Ancient Hebrew writers often structured their writing in a way that would highlight the point that they really wanted to emphasize. Today, you know, if we were trying to do that, we would use, you know, we'd use a bold font or, or italics, or maybe we would underline something. They couldn't do that back then, and most people couldn't read anyway, so they, so they used a rhetorical device it was called a chiasm a chiasm to highlight what they wanted to emphasize and i don't want i don't want to get too bogged down in that too much but but i do want you to understand this but basically a chiasm followed a pattern like this think about making an outline for a talk or something here's the way here's the way that it went they would make a point point a point b point c and then it reverses on itself and they go back to making the same point in different words uh, that they started or that they ended with, so A B C and then C B A, and the thing that you're supposed to pay the most attention to is what's in the middle, the C point. Think about it. Think about. I, I realize that's kind of hard to understand as I say it. Think about it like. Think about it like this. Think about it like making a great sandwich. So like this: A, there's the bread on top. B, there's the mustard. C, there's the meat. Now, it goes back on itself. Another C, another piece of meat. B, more mustard. And then A, another piece of bread. You see, the bread, the mustard, they're all important to the sandwich, but the most important part of the sandwich is what's in the middle, the meat. That's how the 23rd Psalm is structured, as a chiasm. And so it's it's no coincidence that David comes out of verse 4 and the dark valley with this comment about uh, a table, sitting at a table uh, in the presence of his enemies in verse 5. Verses 4 and 5 are the the meat of this psalm. This is what David wants to highlight. That's one thing I want you to notice. Something else I want you to notice that happens between verse 4 and verse 5 is that the metaphor changes, doesn't it? Uh, To this point in the psalm, David has been using a sheep-shepherd metaphor to describe his relationship with God. Verse 1, he says, the Lord uh, is my shepherd. That's how he introduced the psalm. But now, in verse 5, the metaphor changes. Suddenly, David is sitting at a table that God has elaborately prepared just for him, eating an elaborately prepared meal in the presence of his enemies, presumably the enemies that were surrounding him in the dark valley that he just described in verse 4. And again, this change of metaphor is no coincidence. Again, this is the meat of the sandwich, the meat of the chiasm, the thing that David wants us to see more than anything else. And here's here's what it is that I think he wants wants us to see. Let me say it like this. that peace in the valley is the direct result... Of expanding your perception of reality. That's what we were talking about a moment ago. That peace, peace in the valleys of life, is the direct result of expanding your perception of reality. Now, let me just explain how this works. First, as Dr. King said in the sermon that I, a portion of the sermon that I read to you a moment ago, uh, it's very tempting to allow circumstances to define reality. Uh, I said just a few minutes ago that that had happened to me this past week. I looked around at some of the circumstances of my life, the ones that I could feel and, and see and touch, and, and I concluded that the logical response to my circumstances was despair because those were the circumstances I could see. Now, look, I'm not, I'm not always that way. There, there, there are times in which I'm full of faith though I must admit that those times tend to depend largely upon my circumstances too. If the circumstances I'm dealing with are more to my liking, I tend to conclude that God is, you know, God is good, that, he's, that, he's, that He loves me, that, he, that He's with me through whatever those circumstances are. And maybe that happens to you too, that your faith largely depends upon your circumstances. If it does, let me just encourage you that you and I are not alone. There's this story in the Old Testament uh, Testament about a prophet of God named Elijah. Uh, The king over Israel at the time and his wife, whose name was Jezebel, had led the nation into worshiping a false god named Baal. Elijah, in a moment just full of incredible faith, calls for uh, a duel of sorts between Baal and the God of Israel. And in spectacular fashion, God puts to rest any question of his power, and he makes all of the worshipers of Baal look foolish. It's an incredible moment, it's an incredible triumph for God, and it's an incredible moment of faith for Elijah. But as you can imagine, the king and the queen of Israel don't appreciate being made to look stupid. And so they put out, they, they put out a contract on Elijah's life, and Elijah hears about it. Now, what do you think his response was? Like, do you think, he, do you think he's, he's, he's amped up saying, bring it on. My, my God will come through. No, that's not what his response is. He runs for his life. And literally, literally the passage says that when he was exhausted from running, here's what it says, he sat down under a tree and prayed that he might die. <laughs> Why? Because in the moment, despite all that he had seen God do, the power of the king and queen, their power to do him harm seemed so much more real than the power of God to protect him. And he felt alone, and he felt abandoned, and he felt despairing. And maybe that's something that you can relate to. I know I can. We, all, we, we, we allow our sense of reality to be defined by our circumstances. But that's what's Fascinating about this particular psalm. This psalm, though it's written and constructed beautifully, isn't abstract. It's not theoretical. David's been in dark valleys on many different occasions in his life. He's had enemies chasing him. He's been surrounded uh, by enemies at moments of incredible vulnerability. He's been in places where the the chips were down and, and the circumstances looked hopeless. But he's telling us here when you find yourself in the valleys of life, instead of allowing yourself to define reality by your circumstances, he tells us that you have to expand your perspective on reality. And the way you do that, let me just say it this way, is to let the character of God expand your perspective on reality. Let the character of God expand your perspective on reality. Reality. It would have been very easy for David in the loneliness of whatever the circumstances were that he was describing here to, to focus on the darkness of the valley that he was in, the, the depth of the valley, the size or the number of his enemies. Instead, what he does here is that he pulls back the curtain that divides time and eternity, and he sees an altogether different scene happening in eternity, something altogether different than the chaos and the darkness that are physically present around him. Listen listen to how he describes it again. He says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And each of those images are intended to expand your perspective on reality when you're in a dark valley. What you feel and what is true in those moments are very, very different. Here's something you need to understand. That faith isn't opposed to reason, but it is sometimes opposed to feelings and to appearances and to, to what it seems like the circumstances around us are telling us. If you've ever been in the dark valleys of life, the, the dark valleys often tell us that, that everything is chaos, that, that everything's out of control, that if God exists, He doesn't care about you, that, that He certainly can't be good if He's allowed into your life these particular circumstances. Each of these images, again, are intended to dispel each of those feelings. First, that everything is chaos. If you've ever been to someone's home who's really a gifted host, if you've ever been to their home for dinner, you've likely experienced that there's nothing haphazard or chaotic about the dinner. Like They're not rushing around. They're not preparing on the fly. They're not making you anxious as they do. They've taken great pains. A great host has taken great pains to make you feel at home and peaceful. They've laid out the table ahead of time, maybe even, maybe even have a little place setting that tells you where to sit so that you don't even have to wonder or be uh, anxious about that. Everything is prepared with your peace in mind. It's not chaos. It's peaceful. When David says, you've prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This is what he's trying to convey. Second, this imagery here is intended to dispel the idea that circumstances sometimes make you feel that God doesn't care about you. In that culture, you would anoint a person's head with oil as a way of expressing how honored you are that they were in your home. You were saying, by doing that, you're special to us. We're glad you're here. You matter to us. Your presence is important to us. You see, David is using that imagery to convey or to dispel the idea, I should say, to dispel the idea that circumstances sometimes make you feel that God doesn't care about you. David says, you matter deeply to God despite what the circumstances tell you. You anoint my head with oil, he says. And then third. Sometimes circumstances make you feel that if God is present, He couldn't possibly be good by allowing these circumstances into your life. And to dispel that, David uses this imagery. He says, he says my cup overflows. Again, if you've ever been to, um, to, to a person who's really a gifted host, you know that they're not sparing in their treatment of their guests. They're generous always watching to see if their guests have any needs, filling up their glasses before the guest even has the chance to ask for something more to drink. That's what David is communicating when he says that you anoint my head with oil and then my cup overflows, that God is abundantly generous with him, no matter what his circumstances are telling him. David's saying that the way that God cares for him, despite the circumstances that he sees around him, is overwhelming to him, that it eclipses the darkness of the circumstances that he finds himself in. You see, what he's doing is he's bringing the character of God into the circumstances that he's in, and he's allowing this character to expand his perception of reality. Instead of just looking at the circumstances, David looks back at what he knows to be true about the character of God, and he brings, those in, brings that into these circumstances, and it eclipses all of those ideas that his circumstances want him to believe. And all of this leads him to conclude with this declaration of Of the triumph in verse 6 of God's goodness and love despite the appearance of his circumstances. He says, Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I don't know, I don't know if you think to yourself that it would be impossible to have that kind of perspective in the midst of dark valleys. Yeah, sure, King David writing a psalm in the Old Testament, eh, maybe he could have that perspective, but it would be impossible for someone today to have that kind of perspective. I want to read to you a true story written by a man by the name of Randy Hoyt, and I'm just going to tell you in advance that this is kind of a lengthy story, but I think it'll be worth it as I read this. He tells this story. He says, Doctors and nurses were doing everything possible for my wife, the mother of my seven children, yet I could see the hopelessness in their faces. Through an emergency C-section during the fifth month of her pregnancy, it was discovered that the detached placenta had grown through the uterus and attached itself to her bladder. The bleeding was so profuse during surgery that my wife Chris was given 30 units of blood. And as the night wore on, her battle for life became desperate. I cried out, God, what do, you, what do you want? I know you can heal her, why don't you? In the middle of my darkest night, Randy writes, God began to speak. I wanted a miracle. He wanted to discuss his character. Do you believe that I'm a loving God? Sitting beside my wife's bed amid the chaos of ICU, I needed to answer that question. I could have said, no, you can't be a loving God. Look around here. My wife is dying. My newborn daughter may die. I have to go home and tell six children that their mother will not come home again, ever. But God gave me the grace that night to see Him as He is. Yes, I told Him, you are a loving God. No matter what happens here tonight, I will not question your character. Well, he says, Chris's condition worsened. In the end, her determination to give our daughter life cost Chris her life. And our daughter lived only 16 days. What about our plans, God, I asked? Who will teach the kids, guide them, and love them like their mother? God laid it on the heart of a man, he writes, to head up an effort which became known as Help Bring Hope to the Hoyt Kids. In six months, hundreds of people worked, sent money, donated supplies, and poured love into our family. Churches provided food daily. On weekends, as many as 50 people were fed. I received more than 500 letters, emails, and cards from people who said that they were praying for us. I'm writing this in the house that God has given us. The medical bills are gone. The house is paid for. I'm working as well as schooling my children. He says, One night I lay awake, tormented with the memory of Chris fighting for her life. I tried to remember her with the light of life in her eyes, but all I could see was death. I could see myself I could feel myself falling into depression when suddenly before me was a vision of Chris so perfectly alive in Christ, shining and healthy, no pain, just pure joy on her face. See her as she is now, the Holy Spirit seemed to say. She's alive. And Someday you'll be together with Jesus in your daughter, Grace. And he concludes with this. He said, I asked God for the life of my wife. I received instead a lesson on the character of God. God is good, he said. And armed with that knowledge, I have no fear for today or for the future. God will always be enough for any situation. And that's reality. You see, the God Himself is enough for any situation. There is a joy that His presence brings into any set of circumstances. It cannot be extinguished. Even the one that we find ourselves in now, with all of the uncertainty that is part of it. Perhaps you find yourself these days feeling frightened, throwing your hands up in despair right now. You know, there's, no, there's no cure that's been found for this virus, not even any treatments to help minimize it. And we're going back now into normalcy, or at least the new normal, as if everything is going to be okay. And as we stand on the brink of this new normal, we don't have any idea what that's going to bring. It may be, maybe, It will be uneventful, but it could also carry tragedy and heartache. I hope for the former, certainly, and I know you do too, but the reality is that we don't know. I read uh, an article in a newspaper this past week. The article was entitled, "'How to Stay Optimistic When Everything Seems Wrong.'" There wasn't anything wrong. There wasn't anything wrong with the article. The suggestions that the author made were fine in and of themselves. It's just that there wasn't really any basis for optimism in the article than just wishful thinking. And if the 23rd Psalm existed in a vacuum, you might argue that what the psalmist writes here is just a religious form of wishful thinking that there's a good God whom we can trust no matter the circumstances. But this psalm wasn't written in a vacuum. It's fascinating that the New Testament brings all of the imagery of this psalm together into one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we've mentioned throughout this series, Jesus in the New Testament refers to himself as the Good Shepherd. And then there's this scene in the New Testament On the night before he was going to die, where he assembled all of his disciples around a table to eat the Passover meal together, the disciples must have thought that it was the weirdest Passover meal that they'd ever been to because there was bread like there was in all Passover meals, there was the cup, something to drink like in all Passover meals, but there was no lamb there. That was traditional in Passover meals. But There wasn't any lamb there. What kind of supper is that? Bread? Okay, fine, thank you. Drink? Okay, that's good. Where's the lamb? And Jesus stood up at this table, and He made it clear that He was the Lamb of God. And what Jesus was saying that night was there are a lot of people who claim to be shepherds, shepherds all over the world who will tell you, here's how to live, how to think positively, how to face desperate times. But he said, I am, he was saying, I am the ultimate shepherd because I'm the shepherd who becomes a lamb. I am the shepherd of the 23rd Psalm who became a sheep. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world through my death on the cross. I am the ultimate Passover Lamb. I am the ultimate Passover meal that God has prepared before you. In the presence of your greatest enemies, sin, death. Then he takes the cup full of wine and he says to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out on you, a cup that overflows with the extravagant goodness and love of God for us through Jesus' shed blood on the cross for us. I want you to understand that we don't place confidence, we don't have hope in wishful thinking. We base it in the cross of Jesus Christ in which all of the character of God comes together. And it's that that gives us confidence that God will provide the resources of His goodness and His love in abundance, whatever it is that happens, God will be enough. So tempting, isn't it, to let your circumstances define reality for you. But the message of the psalmist is to bring the character of God into those circumstances and let His character expand your perspective on reality. And that's not wishful thinking, because the place that you can go to to see all of that come together is the cross of Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer as we close? Lord Jesus Christ, as we took communion earlier, we are reminded that you are the the meal, The table that God prepares before us in the presence of our enemies. You are the Passover lamb. You are the the cup. Our cup overflows with your blood that was abundantly given so that our sins could be forgiven. We are more sinful as people than we would ever care to admit, and yet we are more deeply loved. It is clear that we are more deeply loved than we can ever, ever imagine. Thank you for the truths of this 23rd Psalm that we've been looking at over the last number of weeks. And Lord, I pray for the people of City Church that as we go into the uncertain days ahead that we would carry the truths of the Psalm into our day-to-day lives. We would bring your character, your goodness, your mercy, your abundant generosity. We'd bring all of that into our circumstances. And that we would find courage and confidence for the days, of head, days ahead. Knowing that you are enough. No matter what happens. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.